Welcome to the 34 Circes. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb and I am here with... Dawn Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome everyone. And we are both very lucky to have uh, a return engagement back and better than ever. We got someone to come back. Yes, we got someone to come back. (laughs) Professor Ping Yao, welcome. Hi, how are you guys? We're great. Thank you, thank you, thank you for inviting me back. We're so thrilled to have you. Now, last time we spoke, I believe it was back in November of last year, we uh, made you talk about a, a time period that was not your area of study, and you were very kind to indulge us with that. But today we get to talk a little bit more in your sweet spot because you have published a book. Tell us about that. The title is called Women, Gender, and Sexuality in China, Brief History, published by Rutledge, December 2021. So it should be available on Amazon. And a lot of universities have uh, e-copies as well. It's a sort of general introduction of women's history in China. What do you specialize in, in terms of your field of study? You're in the the history department, if I'm not mistaken, at Cal State LA. What is your specialty? And then how does this book tie with that? My field is actually women and religion in medieval China. This book is a brief history from very early period to modern China. You know, Rutledge contacted me uh, years ago asking if I would be interested in textbook in this nature. And I, I thought, well, this is the book I really wanted to write because I teach exactly the same course at Cal State LA. I always had a trouble finding a go-to book for the course, and I compiled a set of primary sources for myself from scratch, actually. That, that was the reason that I, I said, yes, uh, let's do it. And it took uh, years, five years to finish, wow. but I'm very happy it's out. That's a lot of history to cover. Yes, so it is. five years certainly would take. So do it yourself because you needed something that would help for what you're teaching. So maybe let's get this entree in. What was the, in, in terms of if we were taking a, a class with you, what, what, what would we expect to uh, be introduced to? What kind of, what would be the framework of women's history in China that a typical student might get in one of your classes? Excellent question. When I started teach a class 25 years ago, I encountered students who just had a preconception that women in Chinese history, it's about foot binding, you know, inequality, gender hierarchy, women were suppressed, women had no agency. No, women, we have a rich history, diverse groups of distinguished women, and also throughout Chinese history, various social contexts can determine the perception of gender, sexuality, and it evolved throughout Chinese history. And my goal of this book 
is to say how it evolved and what caused the evolution and the change. Especially, I wanted to stress women's agency. Nice. Yeah, yeah. To reduce five thousand years of history to one idea is ludicrous at best. So, <laughs> yeah. Luckily, I mean,、uh, that was twenty-five years ago. I would encounter students, but now American students evolved as well. They know about China a lot more than you know students twenty-five years ago. So my students are getting better and better. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I'm curious just about that before we even dive into the work. What is the difference? What is the greater awareness that students have now that they didn't have 25 years ago? What were some of the misconceptions people had when you first started that you don't find with students now? Well, I don't think students would say footbinding was the only thing you needed to know about women in Chinese history. They knew girls were educated among elite classes. I mean, when I talk about Mulan, students all got excited because they saw the animated Mulan years ago, and then they loved it. So that really helped. But also the introduction of a lot of Chinese films and the literature throughout the years helped as well. I mean, also Chinese students from mainland China studied in American universities, and I think that helped as well. I really can see the change. Well, let's get into it because we have five thousand years of history to cover in one podcast, right? <laughs> <No> . That's not going to happen. But we talked before about picking a couple of moments throughout the history of China and just expanding a little bit, and then you know, hopefully, that will raise people's interest and encourage them to read your fabulous book. Thank you. Yeah, so we wanted to talk sort of about how, at first, in the Han Dynasty, which was very early in the dynastic period of China, two hundred BC to two hundred CE ish,、right. the status of women was very influenced by Confucianism, which was sort of the embraced religion at that time, spiritual practice at that、yeah. time, and Confucianism was is. Very hierarchical. It's very concerned with sort of maintaining harmony in the world by everyone, sort of as the kids would call it, staying in their lane, right? Know your position. Exactly. Exactly. Know where you fit in society. So, if you want to talk a little bit about that, about how that sort of dictated the Book of Rights, we talked a little bit about this last time. But the concepts of the private realm and the public sphere, the three obediences, that kind of thing, just sort of give us a, a thumbnail sketch of、um, women's position in society at the time. The Han Dynasty set the tone for perception of gender and. Women's position, and then the three obedience first appeared in the Book of Rights. It was sanctioned. It basically suggested a woman should obey a father before her marriage, and a husband.、Uh, she should obey a son after her husband dies. So that was set in stone during the Han Dynasty. And then, because Confucianism was established as orthodox during Han Dynasty, especially male Confucian scholars consider this is definite rules to follow. But I I wanted to mention an influential female scholar named Fan Zhao. Ah,、uh, she wrote a book admonishing to women on lessons for women, Yu Jie. In this book, even though she generally 
strongly suggested women should obey her father, her husband, her son, but she considered gender relation is a yin and yang, but complementary to each other, but not hierarchical. That was a period we still considered yin yang as sort of equal, even though yang should be dominant position, but how they function is they complement to each other, but that changed later on. Right. With all of these, whenever there's this particular development or shift in history that is specific to a directive. In other words, suddenly a decision is made that women must behave in this manner. It makes me curious as to where or why that came from. So what, to what extent could you give us some insight into how did this sensibility and Confucianism come about? Where did it come from? And why was there such a focus on this sort of dominant male uh, and obedient female? And then in terms of the complementary, was that something that came from a more Taoist framework? So was it part of a different culture, an earlier culture developed out of that, or an earlier religious framework? Uh, right, right. Okay. Yeah, well, the perception of yin yang, did we talk about yin yang last time? I, I think a little, I think we did a little bit. We did, yeah. Uh, it was originally a Taoist ideal, but Confucianism ethicists definitely relied on the yin yang concept to define social and familial relationships. During the Han Dynasty, because the Qing Dynasty, the previous dynasty, was short-lived, like not even 20 years. So the Han Dynasty was the first dynasty that China needed to figure out how the imperial system worked. Unfortunately, a lot of emperors died very young. So dowagers and then uncles had a tremendous power in imperial court. So Confucian scholars and officials decided, well, we have to make sure that not happened. And that was why they were so interested in setting the right to sort of tamp down female power. And I think that's probably the historical background of why gender suddenly became so important during this period. That would make sense, of course. If you have that much of a turnover, then you want to have some sort of order to it. It is, of course, interesting as, as Don and I always note when we do these podcasts that the go-to is immediately male patriarchal dominion, but... Yeah, whenever there's disorder, clearly it has to be the fault of the women. They have too much power, so let's constrict that right away. (laughs) Make sure... Yeah. So one thing I also wanted to say about Ben Zhao, am I pronouncing that right? Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, that that even though she wrote this book about women's behavior, she wrote it for her daughters and, you know, as a sort of guideline about how they should behave. She herself, from what I understand, was not at all concerned with obeying any of her own rules, that she was the ruler of her family. She made the decisions and she was very um, active as a Confucian scholar. So she had enormous prestige and influence, even as she's writing this book about being sort of modest and obeying other people, which I thought was kind of amusing. Right, right. And then she was known to be the very first female mathematician in Chinese history, because she wrote a chapter for the history of Wuhan when her brother Ban Gu passed away for the imperial court. She also wrote so many poems, 
commenting on historical events. She traveled with her son when her son took a position near、uh, Luoyang. They visited historical sites, and she commented a lot of what happened in the past. And so she she was not shy from、uh, speaking out. That's great. So that sort of is an extremely thumbnail sketch of the Han Dynasty and how sort of Confucianism was starting to really codify the roles of different genders in society. Let's skip ahead a bit, about five、uh, hundred years or so, to the Tang Dynasty (T A N G), when Confucianism had started to be, or was mostly replaced by Buddhism as the sort of embraced religion of the country of China. And how did that make different opportunities for women? Because Buddhism, being more of a sort of egalitarian in the sense that everyone's soul has the same journey, the same. Importance, that kind of thing. How did that shake up the sort of gender balance that had been established? And then we'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about Empress Wu. Okay, thank you. I'm glad that we now move to the Tang Dynasty. Definitely, Buddhism became really, really popular during the Tang Dynasty. The father of the dynasty. The Li family, before they established the dynasty, the the clan had long intermarried with Turkic tribes, and then non-Han groups always embraced Buddhism because they consider if we want to have some legitimacy, we wanted to support a different religion. So the Li clan were very pious Buddhist believers. And so I want to make sure that the Confucianism was never replaced. It was always the、uh, orthodox of the dynasty. But the competition during the Tang Dynasty was actually between Taoism and Buddhism. Interesting. Okay.、And、so depending on which emperor was in the reign, if emperor favored the Taoism, when there was a procession, Taoists would walk ahead of Buddhists. And under Empress Wu, for example, then Buddhists. This should walking should walk, <laughs> but the Tang Dynasty also supported Taoism as well because they claimed the founder of Taoism was their ancestor. You know, they trace back to Laozi. So both religions were supported from time to time. There was a competition, but definitely under Empress Wu's reign, Buddhism was really, really supported by Empress、um, Wu. By the way,、uh, was the only official female ruler in Chinese imperial history. She supported Buddhism because at one point of her life, she was a Buddhist nun. As a teenager, she was selected as a consort to the emperor. Taizong. That was during her early years. But then the emperor died. Her name is Wu Zhao. Was ordained as a Buddhist nun because that was the imperial practice. As a consort, if you don't have an heir, then you would be forced to become a Buddhist nun within this imperial Buddhist nunneries. But then when Emperor Taizong's Son became the emperor. Emperor Gaozong. He visited the nunnery, saw her, and then was very interested in her, and eventually took her as his consort. She was called back, and then later as his empress. And then when 
高中 was L. She co-ruled and then eventually became a sole ruler, deposed her own sons. So this was、uh, the Emperor Gaozong had a stroke in 660. She basically ruled until 710, 45 years altogether. That's amazing. At one point, she even changed the Tang Dynasty into the Zhou Dynasty, <laughs> had her own reign from Tang Dynasty from 690 to 705. So, because she at one point was a Buddhist nun, she elevated Buddhism to state religion, and then she considered herself kind of like the Buddha figure. Yeah. She、uh, embraced. There are two prophecies of a of a sort of female Buddha who would take right, over、yeah. Maitreya. Yeah, 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 totally. And she sort of embraced that. She sort of took on the persona of Maitreya and、mm-hmm. had you know statues carved of the Buddha with her face, which is just beautiful. Right. But you know, you're right.、Uh, women's position did improve during her reign. One example is she issued the edict that from now on, mothers should be mourned equal length as fathers. According to the Book of Rights, children mourn their father for three years, but mother for only one year. It was under、uh, Empress Wu's reign. It changed to three. And she promoted other women, if I recall. Great officials, yeah.、Uh, one of them was a very famous poet, Shangguan Wangner, which I have a profile in the end of my book. My last chapter is about five women to remember. One of them was Empress Wu's female official in the palace, Shangguan Wangner. Was that the first female prime minister she appointed? Only concerning inner palace affairs. Got it. Got it. She did advance women's careers in ways that previous dynasties had not. Certainly. Yeah. I'm just curious too. Going back to the the Tang specifically, they're steppe people, right? They were descended from steppe tribes, people that were out in the Eurasian steppes. So the understanding that I had read was that they'd had more of an egalitarian lifestyle. Is that correct between men and women? And what would be some examples of how? That particular dynasty shifted things generally for the average woman. Oh yeah, you're certainly right. And then you can see from the Tang paintings, right?、Uh, women playing polo, you know, visiting gardens and travel. You know, if I remember correctly,、uh, in my book I mention Chinese women. We call her Yu Danya, who had a shipping company. Basically, was the biggest.、Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> In the Tang Dynasty, I mean, women were very active for sure during this period. Was it similar? No, maybe we can jump ahead and jump back a little bit. Under the the period where there was a Mongol Dynasty, was there a similar kind of egalitarianism or or not? Correct. Yes. What was that like at that time period for under the Mongol?、Uh, Do we see again in, like you were saying, in literature and painting, images of more active women, or just even images of women? I know we had talked about Dawn that certain times you would see women not even shown in culture or displayed in in artwork. So, what was it like under under the Mongol dynasty, and how was it similar to the Tang one for women? 
Well, Mongol culture back then was,、uh, as you said, very egalitarian. Before they conquered China, women could participate their public meetings. You know,、uh, they make political decisions. But after they established the Yuan Dynasty, things did change. Especially Han Chinese women、uh, were not allowed to participate that kind of political activities. That was right after the Song Dynasty. Women's position declined, and then I don't think under the Yuan, women's position were any better. Mongol women enjoyed tremendous power and freedom before Mongols conquered China for sure. So it was sort of like a a backlash to the Mongol values. Once they conquered China, they basically, marriages wise,、uh, it's a little bit different.、Uh, you know, they they are allowed to practice their own customs,、uh, especially for example, if a husband dies, the wife would marry to the husband's brother, right? So that's Mongol tradition, and then they actually wanted to enforce that kind of practice. To Han Chinese people, so there's a lot of court cases going on、uh, back then about marriage practice. Overall, under the Yuan,、uh, women's position did not improve much. So yeah, we have this neo-Confucianism that comes in around. I, I believe that's around the Yuan Dynasty. A little bit before Yuan, but the Yuan Dynasty continued neo-Confucian way of thinking. So that was a return to "quote unquote" traditional values,、mm-hmm. which Sean and I know is never bodes well for women. <laughs> Whenever people say we're going to return to traditional values, it generally means exactly, exactly. It generally means we're going to crack down on women's rights. Yeah. So. The foot binding is, as you mentioned earlier, is like one of these things that people, if they only know one thing about Chinese history, they tend to mention foot binding. But do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that came about and when? Okay, yeah, the practice started around tenth century or so. So during what we call the Five Dynasties, it's like between the Tang and the Song. And was popular among the dancers in a palace、uh, because they wanted to dance in a small kind of round table. So if you have small feet, and then that works well. So that so was sort of like toe shoes in ballet. Yeah, it's very much like、uh, ballet shoes.、Um, but then it became a fashion. So at first they considered this very beautiful. It became fashion, and that was how it started. Once it became fashion, then along with Neo Confucian movement, women were encouraged to you know stay in the inner quarters. So foot binding became a way of keeping women inside. But only elite women practiced foot binding because it it became also a sign of、uh, upper class. Then you don't have to go out to work. So that was how it became popular. That's that's a really interesting notion that you don't have to go out to work because it, of course, is what we see now. I've noted when I listen to celebrities talk, male celebrities talk, they take great pride in the fact that their wives don't have to go out to work. There's some sort of like a macho thing that happens with that. So it's interesting to hear you say that that represented that. Right, similar to periods in in European history where 
pale skin is considered a higher status because it means you're not out in the sun working during the day. Also, things like the during the Rubenesque period where larger women, like full-bodied women, were, were was a status symbol of wealth because it meant you had enough to eat. Certainly. I mean, if you look at the Tang paintings, women were very full <laughs> figures. So this is also a sign of, uh, you know, wealth. Of class, yeah. What were, uh, I guess, during these periods, I mean, what were some of the aspects of sort of aesthetic standards that were placed on women throughout this period? You know, we so you talked about the foot binding. Were there other sorts of aesthetic dictates that women were expected to abide by uh, in these different in these different periods of time? Yeah, um, and one thing I, I noticed, well, let's say the Tang Dynasty, the perception of femininity and the ideal female definitely um, changed because the uh, civil service examination, right? Overall, masculine perception of masculinity changed as well. Because uh, previously, if you're macho, you're soldiers, you, you know, in early time, if you conquer territories, that's basically a sign of masculinity. But because emperors who promoted the civil service examination, your literary skill, your ability to recite in Confucian classics became a sign of a desirability. Because of that, men who control discourse, right, uh, would write their ideal women as someone who reads and writes. So in Tang Dynasty novels, short stories, for example, you would see that they depict a girl in a dream who walking slowly with uh, holding a, a book. The second change is depiction of female became more sexual. It was also the period of the birth of uh, erotica, almost like a, a sex, sex manual. And then the poetry is very direct about your skin, about your bosom. Yeah, it's very sexual. <laughs> nice. Nice, nice. Yeah, and, and just a brief little, little step out here. Your book is arranged in seven chapters by theme across time rather than just a straight, like, chronology. So if you want to follow sort of the development of a theme throughout history. The way that you've arranged your chapters really makes that easy to follow. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, mostly because when my students at the end of the semester, they will always say, what should I write? <laughs> so I thought, here you go. Um, I'll pick whichever topic you want. <laughs> nice, nice. You're making it easier for them. That's terrific. So let's... Um, Let's sort of jump ahead again from the from the Sung and the Yuan dynasties to the modern era, the People's Republic, which um, you know started in the late forties, nineteen forty nine, and talk about women's roles in modern China. Well, actually, I lived through right this period. Ah, well, there you go. First hand evidence. Yeah. Well. Theoretically, um, under communist China, women were equal to men, for sure. But then all the tradition died hard, right? Uh, so women, in the end, uh, had a double burden of working in the factory or fields and then uh, coming home and then raise children doing housework. 
Um, that's one thing that is very unique during PRC. The second thing I think is very clear is erasure of femininity. If you think, you know, femininity is not considered a positive thing because you, you're not supposed to be different from men. You're not supposed to think something bourgeoisie. You have to just, you know, act like a man. Interesting. So they, they took as the model that everyone should follow, the male model. Right. As opposed to finding a balance. Yeah. And it is interesting that you mention Arlie Hofschild wrote a book called uh, The Second Shift. And that seems to be a problem all over the developing world, that when women go into the workforce, they still have what is called the second shift when they come home, which means they're still responsible in the cultural sense. They're still responsible for the child rearing and the home housekeeping and all of that sort of thing. Correct. So true. I'm wondering, too, uh, you know, one thing I notice when I watch on the news for um, issues, uh, political issues that may occur in China, I'm always interested in seeing what the political governing bodies look like. And what is the what is the set? What is the level of equality that women have in the political realm in contemporary China? Is there a lot of support for for women leaders and for women in the Chinese Communist Party? Or is it still basically male dominated? Because to my to what I see it still looks very male, but that may oh, just be... very male-dominated. If you look at the top level of leadership, yeah. So there's a glass ceiling in China as well? More so than uh, any other Western world, for sure. Why, why is that? Because isn't the, the stated ideal of all communist parties, there's the idea of you, the genders are equal, promoted equally... How is that? How is that ex- sort of explained or understood? Is it just simply accepted as a cultural tradition, or is there, like in America, they will often say, "Well, they're not electable." You know, Don and I talk about this. You know, this this woman isn't electable, or people won't vote for women, or women don't want to run for office. All the all the excuses that are made. What are what's the reasoning uh, modern Chinese communist leaders use? And is this even an issue for people in China? Do people think, why don't we have more women leaders? Well, in the public, the Communist Party always said men and women are equal. But uh, in reality, I think the, you know, all the perception of women um, are uh, less intellectual uh, than men, more emotional, only care about family, you know, especially once you're married and have children, you know, basically you would not focus or devote yourself to whatever uh, the position you're assigned to. So basically just like here. Yeah, uh, so, sounds pretty so familiar, doesn't it? So yeah. sounds, sounds just like what you hear in the news here. Well, as we're coming sort of towards the end of our time, what what would you like to focus on? What would you like to leave the listeners with? Are there any particular aspects of the, your book that we haven't touched upon? Um, thank you for asking. The two chapters I'm really proud of women's profession, women's work, including I profile a doctor in the Ming Dynasty. Um, so I think women worked throughout Chinese history not only in a household, but also in the fields, in business, in, you know, uh, low-paying jobs. Like the other chapter I'm quite happy with women in literature. 
a woman created literature from very early on, from the Zhou Dynasty. Could you say, that is interesting, could you say a little more about, you said how women created Chinese literature. Could you say a little bit more about that? What, what do you mean by that? Um, this, uh, you know, there are a lot of female writers throughout Chinese history. Great. Do you have a favorite writer? Li Qingzhao in the Song Dynasty. <laughs> and why is she your favorite? Oh, the poems are so beautiful. And in my book, I included not only her poems, but also her sort of memoir. They were not rich, but they read the books and then things like that. I mean, that's really different from my students 25 years ago thinking we only had a foot binding. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And then um, I also in this chapter, I included a couple who composed a hundred poems about their marital life, you know, commemorating how they had the wedding day and the first month, you know, um, they wrote each other husband and wife. That That's sounds beautiful. wonderful. That is really beautiful. What are, who, who, who is that? What are their names just for the... I, some, not, I can't remember, but it, it's in a chapter in Chinese lit, uh, in literature. Okay. Chapter 6. So the chapter also included uh, we call the Chinese Romeo and Juliet. Oh, wow. Nice. Oh, that's wonderful. girl who wanted to participate in the civil service examination, but you know, girls could not participate. So she uh, dressed as a man and then traveled to the provincial capital. And then during the journey, she met a boy. I mean, all, overall, I, I think American readers really should <laughs> learn more about Chinese literature and women in Chinese literature. Yeah, it really, it really seems that from the beginning, China has a very strong focus on educating its people. We talked about this in the last episode where, we, where you know, from the beginning, there were state-sponsored schools with a state curriculum. And it makes sense because of that, that women have participated richly in the literature, because from the beginning, that is a cultural value that is taught to all its citizens. Definitely, and art as well. May I mention that uh, the cover of my book was a downtown dynasty drawing by a young girl uh, sending as a letter to her sister. On the left side, it says, Dear sister, if you miss me, look at this drawing. That's the cover uh, image of my book. So that's a beautiful image. Well, I thank you so much for this and for sharing this. I really do want to look up for that couple who wrote their poems for to each other. Thank you for honoring us. My pleasure. So we've been speaking with Dr. Ping Yao about women and uh, about her book. Uh, could you could you give the title? Women, gender, and sexuality in China: A Brief History. Thank you so much. So thank you for joining us, and thank you, Dawn Sam Alden. And thank you, as always, Sean Marlon Newcomb. It was a great pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you. It's been the 34 Cersei Salon. This has been Make Matriarchy Great Again. Thank you for listening. We will be back again with you soon. Take care, everyone, and blessed be.